Our help is in the name of the Lord, who made heaven and earth. Okay, welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Evergetinos, uh, the writings of the early fathers of the church from the 4th to the 7th century. And uh, for those who are new, it's a four-volume set, uh, all ranged with 50 hypotheses, uh, dealing with uh, one subject after another about the spiritual life and spiritual struggle, the development of prayer. So we're in the first volume on page 163. And if you remember from our last group, we had been discussing the importance of heeding the counsel of, of elders or of the fathers. And certainly for those who are living in the desert, uh, who are often placed under the elder for formation, it became very important not only to receive the counsel and follow the counsel of one's elder who had experiential knowledge of the spiritual life, uh, but also to have a willingness, a trust to reveal one's thoughts uh, on a daily basis. And we'll talk a little bit about how that might apply to our life. And certainly the next hypothesis will also be important for us to consider, which is about that we should not do this with just anyone. And uh, the, there's always been great harm that's been done throughout the centuries uh, by having a spiritual director or elder who is, does not have great discretion and uh, does not give good counsel. And, and so the fathers were very clear about this, that we do not entrust our innermost thoughts simply to anyone, but one who has proven himself or herself over the course uh, of years by the way that they live their life. And uh, so these two hypotheses are intimately tied together. So just to keep that second part in the back of your mind, that some of what we will be looking at here tonight is qualified uh, but by what will be said in the next hypothesis, that it's not to be done indiscriminately, okay? So again, we're picking up on page 163, letter D, with St. Ephraim the Syrian. My brother, take care of yourself, that no evil thought happens to be engendered in your heart, and that you do not entertain this thought or hide it from your spiritual father. For something similar happened to one of the ancients, he took from the offerings and hid them in his tent. The same thing happened to Gehazi, the servant of the prophet Eliseus. Uh, but these acted secretly, though in so doing escaped neither the eye of God nor the attention of men. Having done evil in secret, they earned their just fruits openly. The first of these two was stoned together with his whole family, but all, all of the people, while the second received leprosy as his lot, I'm sorry, by all the people, while the second received leprosy as his lot, along with his descendants. He's not a liar who said, God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Now, the second quote, certainly from St. Paul to the letter to Galatians, the first one might be a little bit obscure to us. It's uh, about an individual in the Old Testament in the book of Joshua called Akan, and uh, he was ordered uh, in um, when the Israelites were in Jericho not to pillage, and this is something that he did. He st stole gold pieces and uh, did this secretly, and it came back to haunt him as we hear uh, that he was stoned to death and with his whole father. And I, I read a little bit about him and some of the rabbinic writings say it wasn't his whole family, but that he was and that his family 
had to watch this take place. But I think what the fathers are trying to say is that uh, all things are seen by God. And one of the things I think we struggle with in the spiritual life is that uh, even if, if we're successful in hiding things from ourselves, if we can push things far enough out of our own minds, we can live under the illusion that somehow God does not know about those things. And so, so long as we can distract ourselves by the things of this world, or we can silence our conscience or convince ourselves that what we have done has harmed nobody else, or that it's unseen, then it will have no consequence. And as St. John Paul II said, that sin in and of itself is its own punishment. And eventually we come to experience the consequence of it, perhaps not being stoned to death, uh, but uh, the impact that it has upon our relationship with God, uh, I think is captured well by that that uh, in a sense, we are stoning ourselves to death whenever we do sin. It's not God who's doing it to us, but we ourselves are inflicting uh, this kind of punishment on ourselves. So we're breaking down that union, that communion, that experience of love with God by the small ways that we, we turn away from him. And, uh, and so this is why we, we have from the Father, there's always this constant counsel to be watchful, but also to have a kind of humility that we're willing uh, to lay before God and before others to audibly acknowledge the things that we've thought and the things that we've done. And in fact, as we move along through this section tonight, we'll see how important it is not simply to acknowledge it and confess it after we've done it, but when we sense something within us moving towards sin, or we sense the rising of certain thoughts or ideas within the heart is the moment that we want to expose them to the light. And our ability to acknowledge that truth to an elder, to a confessor, is something that brings forward an outpouring of God's grace in our life. And it's the humbling of ourselves before God. It's then that God lifts us up and draws us to himself. When we do not try in our pride or in our fear to hide those things from him, but bring them into the light that they might be healed. And I've often found in you know, spiritual direction or in the confessional, um, at times that there, there is a hesitancy that we have, or maybe just not the sense that there's a value of bringing, and sometimes it is the distinction between mortal and venial sin, which can be very helpful, but on, on some level, it it can give us the sense that it's not important to bring the venial sins to confession. Uh, and so thoughts that we dwell on or nourish and nurture within our minds and our hearts are precisely the things that we would want to, to bring uh, to our elder, to the confessional, in order that we might know the grace of God in the struggle with them. And so the moment that we see that movement within our heart is when we want to act not try to labor simply under the power of our own will, uh, because eventually that will break down. It's only by the grace of God that we can win that spiritual battle, if you will. And we've talked so many times before that we, you know, that having upwards to 50,000 thoughts a day, that battle can be a, a pretty fierce one at times. Okay. Letter E from Abba Isaac, and again, one of our favorites, Isaac the Syrian, two Syrians back to back here. 
My brother, if you err in something, do not tell a lie because you are ashamed, but make a prostration and say, forgive me, and your error will immediately be forgiven. Do not have different words in your mouth than you have in your heart, for God is not mocked, but sees all, both things hidden and things in the open. Therefore, do not hide any of your temptations or any concern or any desire or even a simple thought, but freely confess them to your Abba. I'll just pause there for a second. To say forgive me is often one of the most difficult things for us to do. Uh, even if at times when it's a small slight, when we've talked to somebody in a curt fashion, uh, or when we perhaps have ignored them, when we've been harsh with them, or we, when we've done something wrong, that we can sort of uh, immerse ourselves in you know this protective little fort that we build with our defenses, uh, because we do not want to be ashamed. Uh, we don't don't want to be vulnerable before the other. And to ask somebody for forgiveness uh, always brings the risk with it that they won't offer it, that they won't respond in a generous fashion. And so I think when the pride, pride gets the best of us or self-esteem, it can prevent us from saying those simple words, forgive me. And uh, it can also prevent us from saying them to God as well, that we don't often want to see our own poverty or to acknowledge our, our poverty or spirit. And so the, the counsel here is beautiful in its simplicity, certainly not easy, uh, and, but also not to lie about uh, the things that we've done too, that we will often seek, even when we are acknowledging things, to articulate it in, in a way where it sounds better than what it is, that we will couch things uh, behind reasons or excuses. I did this because, or you said this to me, so I, I, did, I said this or did this to you. And, uh, and so we, we do not want to, um, to make excuses, uh, which have often been called plausible lies, uh, that there is truth in them often, uh, but in reality, they are, are a lie, you know, that what is driving uh, the, our reason for doing certain things is really our pride or, again, our desire to get uh, a, a kind of position of emotional, get an emotional foothold over another person. And so to say, forgive me, to acknowledge that we've done something that we've, and to say it in the fullness of the truth, not to varnish it, is to let go of that and to say, I'm not going to try to elevate myself or protect myself here before the other, but what's most important is living in the truth. This is what God sees. Uh, one of my favorite stories from the Old Testament is uh, where, uh, uh, where Samuel is seeking to anoint the new king of, of Israel. And he goes to Jesse's home to see his sons, and he catches sight of Eliab, and he sees his stature. You know, he looks kingly in his bearing. Uh, but God tells Samuel, I have not chosen him. In fact, I, I have rejected him. Uh, for man does not see as God sees. Man looks at appearances, uh, 
but God looks into the heart. And if we can hold on to this in the spiritual life, that God looks into the heart, uh, sees both what is good, but also sees the, the ways that we have fallen and sees them not in a way that's condemning, but with the desire to heal. He knows the sorrow of our weaknesses and of our sin and wants to heal them. And if we can begin to see God not as a harsh judge, but a loving father who wants to bring us healing, then either to ask for forgiveness or to simply acknowledge the truth of something before him, it becomes something liberating and ultimately leads us to the place of joy. Okay, any comments or thoughts so far? Okay. So God is not mocked, but sees all, both things hidden and things open. So don't hide your temptations or any concern or any desire or simple thought. So it's not simply temptations uh, or, or desires uh, that we would have, but also concern or any thought that agitates the mind and the heart is something that's good to bring before one's elder in order that he might be able to apply a healing balm. Sometimes we find ourselves overcome by anxiety, the, the tribulations of day-to-day -day life. Things uh, can seem to fall apart around us. One day things are going well, and one thing, uh, the next day our life is unrecognizable. And, uh, and so to be able to freely share those anxieties or those concerns with another can bring great peace. And uh, speaking as one who's made a little bit of a transition uh, in my life, I, I know that having counsel and uh, you know, spiritual direction has been the thing that's kept my head above water. You know, it can be very easy to get twisted up in the details uh, and the experience of tribulation or stepping out into the unknown. And I think having a calming voice, again, of one who's gone through those things and uh, can encourage us is often all that we need, but also can keep us on the right path. Because I think when our minds are clouded or darkened by anxiety, or by anger or resentment, sometimes we can begin to make choices in our life in a state of blindness. We lose our way very quickly. And it's when we have peace in our hearts that I think that we begin to see things for what they are and can make good decisions. He goes on to say, whatever you hear from him, take care to carry it out, performing it with sincerity. For then the battle will be easier for you. The evil spirits find joy nowhere else but in the man who keeps his thoughts silent, whether they be good or bad. That's that little, that last part of that last sentence, I, I think is an eye opener. That the, the devil looks uh, with joy for those individuals who do not reveal their thoughts whether or not they are good or bad, that those individuals who live in a kind of secrecy, who are very guarded uh, about what is going on within them. And again, you know, I'm not saying, and neither are the fathers saying this, that we should wear our hearts on our sleeves and that we should be telling everybody 
about what's going on in our life, and especially the more intimate things that we might be struggling with, that uh, as we'll see in the next hypothesis, that this is only done with the closest confidant and the one that we trust and we, we know as discretion. Uh, but even the good things we're being told here can be used by the evil one in such a way, especially when we keep them secret, like, uh, like when we have a good idea or we think that there will be this change in our life or this thing that we can do that would bear fruit for ourselves, our family, or for God, uh, we can run with it without being discerning, without having discerning hearts. And so having those that we can go before and lay out these ideas, we allow ourselves to have that thought be scrutinized in a gentle way by somebody, who, again, who's objective and, can, and who knows us and can see the workings of our mind and our heart and to help us navigate that. And it's often the good things that can trip us up the most because we become convinced because of the externals of them that they are something from God. But the devil being patient as he is can make use of these things if he knows that they are going to foster or bring about pride down the, down the road. And so he can put good thoughts before us uh, in order to get us moving in a certain direction, even if that might take years in order to bring about a greater fall within our life. And, and so it becomes imperative, I think, even as we move closer to certain decisions in our life or where it does have to do with something that is good or life-changing, that we become relentless with ourselves in uh, going to confession and seeking out spiritual direction and seeking out counsel from as many of those that we know can be trusted. Because it's precisely in those moments, again, that we can be most vulnerable to the evil one's attack. This is not something that you're going to find in your textbooks or even in many, uh, many works on the spiritual life. I think the, the, the Desert Fathers in particular had this sense of the subtle movements of the mind and the heart and of our thoughts, but also the subtle actions of the evil one. We have to remember that you know, entering into the desert, in particular the solitude, they were entering into consciously a battle with demons and being alone with God, but also alone with their thoughts, they began to see the, the subtle movements that were both within the mind and the heart very clearly, and sometimes only through their own faults. And so out of their own sorrows, did they come to see the truth of these things? Jack. Yes, I was wondering, um, as somebody who has a lot of experiences a lot of bad thoughts how do we discern um what's more serious and needs to be discussed and, and how do we keep our peace amidst all that okay good question well you know i think what we do have available to us and this has come up a number of times in the group that uh we might not always have elders or someone that we have uh great confidence in our spiritual director available to us. And, but we do have the sacrament of confession. And so frequent confession 
I think, because of the action of God's grace there, not only in the penitent's life, but also within the action of the priest, his listening to what is being said, that this above all that we, we can trust. And even there, we have to be discerning. And priests are typically pretty hesitant to offer uh, deep counsel to those that they don't know. But often it can be you know, the, the first place that we begin to discern things more clearly. Uh, the ascetical life and the prayer life as a whole, I think is important in the sense of stilling the mind and the heart. And we'll come back to this over and over again through, throughout the group, but, and I've already mentioned the multitude of thoughts that we have throughout the course of a given day. So among the fathers, there was this preference, although they practiced both, there was this preference for non-discursive prayer the short arrow prayers, like the Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, or Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, sinner, or they would take a line from the scriptures. John Cassian, I've mentioned here before, uses, oh God, come to my assistance, oh Lord, make haste to help me, and they would use these short prayers to turn the mind and the heart to God, uh, seeking his grace, but also as a way of moving from the multiplicity of thoughts to simplicity. And so fostering a kind of stillness of mind and heart in our lives. And sometimes that can mean really over the course of time, altering our life and lifestyle in order that that might emerge. So moving away from things that agitate the heart. We've often talked about watching the news, you know, after about 20 minutes, you, you can feel the anxiety arise within you, or, you know, all many different forms of entertainment movie, you know, with often the violence that is present or sensuality, that the, the mind can be become agitated very quickly and the, the memory and the imagination filled with these things. And so I think as we're trying to cultivate hearts that really are attentive to the movement of God's grace, uh, but, also, but also to the action of the evil one in our life, we want to foster stillness, silence, solitude for ourselves. And so that does not mean running off to the desert, but it does mean uh, that we make a priority in our prayer life to put God first and to give God the first fruits of the day and to, to spend you know, time in retreats or lengthy times in prayer in, in order that we might have that stillness of heart and be able to see what's going on within so that we even have a sense of what to bring before our confessor or have a sense of what really needs to be scrutinized. I think spiritual reading uh, is often put forward by the fathers as essential too. And again, it doesn't have to be a huge amount. Here on Monday and Wednesday night, we typically get through three or four paragraphs at the most. And most of the fathers say that that's as much as you would want to do on any given day. What's important is that we internalize what's being said. And so reading, again, the writings of those who have this experiential knowledge gradually helps us to become more discerning so that we have a sense of what thoughts are really important for us to take hold of. If you remember, St. Paul said, we take every thought captive and we make it obedient to Christ. 
And what he means there is that we, we, this is our asceticism, knowing that this is the battle within the mind and the heart, that we take these thoughts captive and the, we set them before the light of Christ in order that we might see them for what they, they are. And that might take great prayer on our part, fasting, and again, as we're hearing in this hypothesis, a willingness to lay forward our thoughts before a trusted counsel in order that they might help us try to see what's going on there. So all those things put together, you know, the spiritual reading, prayer, seeking stillness and so solitude in our life, uh, fostering silence, th these are the most important things for us. I've often been struck by the fact that in the fathers, the, when they make a distinction between the active and the contemplative, they, when they are talking about the active life, this is what they're talking about. You know, we, we've externalized that into works of charity, which it does, that is a, an enormous part of our life. It's part of the gospel. This is how we are to love others. But the active life within the writings of the fathers, they're really speaking about this asceticism where we are seeking to form a mind and a heart that is in accord with the will of God and pleasing to God. So all the things that we just talked about, this is the act of life. And when the heart is stilled and when it is focused upon God, it's then that God can draw a person on to theoria, to what is called contemplation, to this intimate encounter with God where he uh, shines his light upon us uh, in order that we might experience kind of intimacy with him. Often what we hear described in the West by, for example, St. John of the Cross. Uh, John describes himself as walking in darkness in terms of what his own mind can grasp and see, but the light of God pierces through that darkness and God reveals himself to us in and through our faith. So I know that was a lot to throw at you. It was a great question, uh, but this is really at the heart of where the fathers were seeking to lead us. Josie. Josie asks, were the fathers able to distinguish between evil thoughts that came from the evil one and those that came from their own thoughts and hearts? If so, how? Well, Climacus, who we are reading on Wednesday evenings, said that there are three sources for our thoughts, God, ourselves, and the evil one. And so, you know, discernment of where the thoughts are coming from, I think, comes from engaging in this habitual practice or making it habitual of bringing those thoughts to the light. And as we allow the light of God to shine upon those lights, I'm sorry, upon those thoughts, then we begin to see them for what they are. You know, whether they're arising out of our own mind and imagination or memory, or if they come from the evil one, or if God is calling us to <clears throat> see something with a greater clarity. And so what they, the means that they set out of distinguishing them is the spiritual life as a whole. You know, that they don't provide us with, you know, a formula 
or a magic way of figuring that out. I think it's our relationship with God that includes this constant repentance, turning towards him, but uh, uh, turning towards him in prayer, silence, and all the rest of the spiritual life, including what I've mentioned in terms of spiritual reading, that we begin to be able to discern those things with greater clarity. But even then, and this is the point of this hypothesis, is that even then it's important to bring it before, again, trusted counsel, that we aren't always going to be able to distinguish them, even when they are good. It's humility, which is truthful living, which allows us then to lay those things out without any shame or without any question before another. Okay. Any other thoughts, comments? Okay. So let your heart obey your fathers and the grace of the Lord will dwell in your heart. Do not think yourself wise so that you will not fall into the hands of your enemy. The fact that you keep silent and do not reveal your thoughts shows only that you seek the honor of the world and its obscene glory. But he who has the courage to tell his thoughts openly before the fathers rejects them from his mind. You should always seek and receive counsel from your fathers, and thus you will always have peace throughout your entire life. And so our refusal to reveal our thoughts, our hiding them, shows that we are more attracted, uh, attracted to what he describes here as the obscene glory of the world, that where we are seeking to protect our self-image. And, uh, you know, this is really, we see it in the Garden of Eden, you know, that they are seeking for themselves a high, you know, a higher view of themselves. You will become like gods if you eat of the fruit of the tree. And they cling to this, they hide from God. You know, they try to hide the truth, which is foolish. And they experience the, the, the fruit of that, which is the fall. And, but the evil one continues to do this to us. It is this obscene, how does he put it again? Obscene glory that we seek for us. And so whenever we lie or, or whenever we distort the truth, or ignore the truth in some way, we are falling into that same trap as uh, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, Gethsemane, Garden of Eden, that uh, we are trying to hide from God, which is an impossibility. And we are trying to exalt ourselves in a sense above God or make ourselves equal with God by keeping those things to ourselves, thinking that we are impervious to such things or that we're above them. Little did they know that they certainly would know good and evil for themselves in a sort of a tragic fashion. And we all know, know it too well. Okay. Any other thoughts? Oh, the last sentence might strike uh, us as quite a promise you will always have peace throughout your entire life and i often find these statements as being troubling 
to people when we hear them, including myself, you know, this idea that we could live a life where we would know freedom from anxiety, that we would know peace throughout the entirety of our life. And so this is what the fathers are telling us. If we live in humility, if there is this willingness to live in the light, then we will know the peace of the kingdom. We will experience that now, an invincible peace that no one and no thing can take away from us. And so we might experience great trials. We might experience rejection. We might receive false accusation, critique, uh, and yet live in this constant peace of Christ if we are living our life in the light. And I think we see this in the example of the saints. And this is why the church is always directing us to read their lives, to look to them, because they become these living icons of the gospel. You know, they become the embodiment of the gospel for us. And so when we read about them and we see how they dealt with these realities in their, in their life, uh, we see this kind of freedom shine forth from them. Uh, you know, so many of the saints in, in their own time, you know, because of jealousy, you know, even of those within the church were, were silenced, you know, word would get back to the Pope, you know, this, this priest is doing this and, you know, encouraging people to do this and uh, in terms of various forms of prayer. And then, uh, you know, all of a sudden the, the, the Pope removes his faculties for a period of time until the truth comes out. But they were able to bear that. Philip Neary is a great example of this. You know, we, uh, I've mentioned him often before during the Counter-Reformation. He really engaged people in this personal and direct way and involved them in discussions about the faith of church history, scripture, of the fathers. They did. They had groups exactly what we're doing here. And uh, But there became great jealousy because so many people were going to Philip for confession he started the pilgrimage to the great uh, basilicas in Rome, and by the end of his life, something like 3,000 people were participating in it. So he, there was a lot of jealousy, and at one point he was silenced and his faculties were removed, so he wasn't able to function as a priest or hear confessions or to have these groups until, you know, greater truth. Actually, the Pope died uh, at, at that point, but... Uh, but eventually it was lifted. And you know, the truth of what Philip was doing and the fruit of it uh, came to light over the course of time. But we saw, my point is, is that we see in him and others like him, this kind of enduring peace. You know, at a point like that, someone you would say, hey, you know, I'm doing great work here and want to defend himself and, and feel that he needs to do so. And, uh, but this isn't the path that we see in them. You know, this enduring, what we see is this enduring peace and their ability to move forward in the face of trial. Ren, long one. I thought, I thought presented in the second to last sentence that telling thoughts is equal to rejecting is really fascinating. Also interesting to think about when they are what you might consider good thoughts. But sharing them with the Abba, you are showing a willingness to submit all, the good and the bad, to the wisdom of an elder, to reject all for the sake of humility, of truth, of obedience. Sometimes even thoughts that seem very good might not be good for you at the time or might actually 
be not actually be good at all. Very, very well put. And uh, the idea of the rejecting of them for the greater good, which is the humility uh, and the protection that humility brings, the truthful living. And so to submit them, as you described, in obedience to an elder uh, has value for us. Uh, so even if something is lost to us or we have to reject that, we have to set aside that thought, even if it's a good thought, uh, there's always going to be grace that comes from doing so. Because uh, we'll hear later on in the hypothesis that one of the great fears of one of the elders was ever to trust in his, any, any of his own opinions because he knew how easy it was to become self-deluded. And, uh, and this is precisely, I think, what you're talking about here, that you know, humility has a value greater than so many different things in the spiritual life. It is what protects us. If pride is what brought about the fall, then humility is what is going to undo it. It's going to be our path back to God. And, and this is what we hear in the scriptures. He who humbles himself will be exalted. He will be lifted up. And so our, willing, our simple willingness to do this is showing that we're saying yes to God and no to self. Josie had a little follow-up there. It's kind of beautiful that God made it so that our salvation is interlinked with others in so many ways. Yes, that, that's true. You know, that uh, it's not, we're not called to isolation. And it's interesting to find this in the writings of the Desert Fathers who lived in this radical solitude. In fact, they knew that uh, intimacy and contemplation were intimately tied together, but also that there were dangers of entering into that solitude and isolation. And so even those who went very deep into the desert would always keep contact with others because of the nature of the battle itself. Uh, Thomas Merton wrote a little book called No Man is an Island. And, you know, for Christians, that is... Uh, an important truth for us that we we don't live out our our spiritual life in isolation as much as we would like to at times and uh, but always as part of the body of Christ and we never see our spiritual life or our spiritual practices in isolation from others either for example a husband and wife the two are one and so when one is praying, struggling and the other is praying, <clears throat> the one who's praying is strengthening his spouse or her spouse. And, uh, but this is true of the body as a whole. You know, there are those, say, uh, you know, who live in cloistered convents, the Passionist nuns here in Pittsburgh, some of them know you well, you know, they might very well be the backbone of this diocese and be holding it together and keeping it from flying apart. And the same is true often in families. To have one prayer within the family is often what holds it together. And uh, so we, we never want to see ourselves in isolation. Our, what we do might be completely hidden from the world, but in the eyes of God, it might be the most important thing of all. 
And so we don't want to lose sight of that, to judge our own lives in accord with worldly standards, as if somehow we have to prove ourselves to the world or, or prove ourselves to others. You know, the only public that we have to prove ourselves to is God, the angels, and the saints. That's our public. And, uh, and this is where our, our, our focus should be. And when it is, I think we come to know a kind of freedom. Any other thoughts or comments? Okay, letter F from Abba Cassian, another one of my favorites, St. John Cassian. To reveal the Father to the fathers, not only all we do, but also all that we think is a mark of true humility. Because this work renders the monk able to travel the straight path without harm and without danger that he will stumble. It is impossible for one who regulates his life according to the judgment of those with greater experience to fall into the deception of demons. Besides, by itself, the disclosure or revelation of indecent thoughts to the fathers enfeebles these thoughts and causes them to wither exactly as a snake comes out of a dark hole and rushes to be saved by flight and by making himself no longer visible. So evil thoughts also flee from men when they are revealed by sincere admission and a clear confession. So in the spiritual battle, the revelation of thoughts enfeebles them. So it weakens their control over us. And again, this is something important because I think all of us here have probably had those days and those moments where we're hit by a flood of thoughts, whatever they might be, you know, rooted in sensuality or anger or resentment or sorrow, you know, that it can wash over us so powerfully uh, that we feel as though that there's no help or that uh, things are just out of our control and we're to be swept along by the wave of it. But the, once we reveal those thoughts to in confession or confessing them to, again, a confidant, is when the thoughts themselves become enfeebled, that they lose a sense, you know, they lose that sense of power in our eyes and in reality and the sense of being able to control us. And so often, you know, I think when we've had this experience in our life, or certainly as a priest and talking to many people, it feels that way that, you know, I could not help myself, or it's, it seems like it's something out of my control, or the feeling can be that even if I do acknowledge it or confess it, I'm going to do it again. And this is where we have to have great faith and great humility that, uh, our faith is what, and our hope in this promise is what leads us to remain steadfast in that battle, to constantly bring them before the light, even though they seem to have a hold on us, because gradually over the course of time, and this gets back to Jack's earlier question, you know, what do we do? And it's precisely this, the, the revelation of those thoughts gradually weakens their control over us. And the evil one is always going to try through shame to make us become distraught or despondent. And then we, when that happens, we pull into ourselves, 
and we become less likely to reveal the thoughts to another. Andrea and Anthony. Hello, Father David. Hello. Um, you know, while I agree that um, uh, the disclosure or revelation of uh, indecent, indecent uh, thoughts or any thoughts that are not from God, you know, serves to and, uh, enfeeble them and uh, for them to wither away, I do not agree with uh, what uh, Cassian is saying here. Um, that um, uh, this work renders the monk able to travel the straight path without harm and without danger that he will stumble. It is impossible for one who regulates his life according to the judgment of those with greater experience to fall into the deception of the demons. I think that, you know, he's, uh, he must have, uh, I don't know whom he knows or whom he knew, you know, when he was here with us on earth, but I think that we can safely say that no one is infallible. Not even the Pope is infallible. Um, uh, Saint the Pope John Paul II, you know, we have found out in retrospect that he has made great mistakes. Uh, Saint Thomas Aquinas, one of the greatest minds ever, he has made great mistakes. So I think, you know, this kind of assertion that, um, uh, uh, that it is impossible for one who regulates uh, his life according to the judgment of those with greater experience for that person to fall into the deception of demons. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying this only, you know, because, uh, you know, including those, you know, who, who, who guide other souls or to whom God has entrusted the care of souls, not only that they need to be aware that they themselves make mistakes, but also that, you know, those who actually entrust themselves to others, that they will also be aware of that. You know, just like, you know, Satan, you know, can deceive the, the directee, for example, you know, so Satan can also uh, uh, deceive the director. And, you know, while, you know, one has greater experience, that is very much true, but we can also say that no single person on earth is going to experience everything that another person is going to experience or has experienced. Thus, you know, that person cannot really have greater experience in everything. So... You know, while it is very good, you know, we, we need to bring forth, you know, all thoughts that are not from God. Um, but, you know, there still needs to be, we still need to exercise care and, you know, realize that, you know, in the end, you know, things can happen. And sometimes, you know, I hate to say it, but God does allow that to happen for our greater good also. Right. Okay. I, yeah. And, you know, I have, you know, I would say that I'm in agreement with everything that you say there and i think this is why i wanted us to sort of frame this in our reading of both hypotheses and uh because some of the things that you bring up come up in the next hypothesis as well that the great damage that can be done by indiscriminately revealing those thoughts uh to anyone or to someone who does not have that experience in the spiritual life who is not trustworthy who's not discerning uh, in, in, in any way. And I think uh, in our own day and age, we have to be even more discerning in that regard uh, because there is sort of a disconnect from this, the, spiritual, the spiritual tradition and the things that we are reading here tonight. And so I don't think that we can sort of pull things that we're reading here and sort of blindly apply them to our day-to-day -day life. And it's for this reason that we have a group like this to think it through. Well, what does this mean 
and our day-to-day -day life. I think what, how we want to read this and interpret it is the value, uh, the ex extraordinary value of humility among the virtues for ourselves, truthful living. And sort of what Cassian had men mentioned here, uh, or was that the previous paragraph? I think it was Cassian talking about the mere revelation of them enfeebling the power of them, that we are moving away from hiding them or being ashamed by, by them and bringing them before God. You know, our willingness, as it were, to tell them to another is th that path of humility and through and the path through which God acts in our life too, an outpouring of, of his grace and healing. And so I think what the fathers are saying and what Cassian is saying in a very direct manner is that this is the straight path for us. And he's not speaking simply for himself, but he's speaking of what Christ told us and has shown us about humility, that, that this is the path for us to the kingdom. It is not exalting ourselves. It's not hiding from the truth. It's living in the fullness of the truth that brings about healing in our life. And so it's really this path that we're seeking to foster in our day-to-day -day life. And when we get into the next hypothesis, we'll see, all right, we understand the humility, the truthful living, that not lying, that not being ashamed, this willingness to bring our thoughts, ideas into the light is essential. How we do that, when uh, it is very difficult to find an elder. You know, you mentioned who, I don't know who Cassian had around him. Well, he and Germanus went to Egypt and lived there for a good dozen years and went from elder to elder. All who were living this very deep and intense spiritual life for decades. And uh, some of them were in their nineties you know, and so had been living it for this enormous part of their life. And so they were living with those to, uh, to whom they could reveal their thoughts. You know, for us, I think we go to the fathers to help us be discerning. As I said, we go to the sacrament uh, to do this, to, to lay these things before God. And if we are faithful uh, in the face of perhaps lacking good counsel, then, then God is faithful. He, he provides for what often is lacking within our life, that he doesn't leave us or abandon us when, the, say, there is a void of good counsel, whether it's at various times in our life or for long periods in our life, God will be with us and draw us from that darkness into light and into to healing. And so, you know, we want to read what they're writing here critically. But I think we want to be open to the deeper truth that they're, they're speaking about. And the deeper truth is the importance of humility. That thoughts are often the means, not often, the primary means through which the evil one trips us up. And thoughts that are exposed to the light and brought to another. I mean, even between a husband and wife. You know, when certain things are brought forward and discussed and brought to the light, clarity can become your, your, your helpmates, spiritual helpmates. And in many ways, this is the primary 
aspect of the married life is to help each other on this journey toward God. And so this revelation of the thoughts is, you know, takes place in multiple ways. So I don't want to lose the, the truth, you know, in the midst of the, the details of what the, you know, uh, fathers are saying. What's that phrase, something about the, lose the tree in the forest or whatever it's called, or not, how does, how does that go again? I can't, it's on the tip trees of my tongue. What's that? Trees for the forest. For the forest, trees for the forest, right. That we lose sight, I think, of what is right before us, what is most important and being taught here. So all I would counsel at this point is just to, to be patient and follow along with the, what the fathers are saying, and especially, I think, in light of the next hypothesis as well, because I think you're going to find that they agree with what you're saying. Okay. All right. Let's see, we're at number two, is that correct? Something similar was told to me by Abba Serapion about himself. When I was younger, he told me, and I was with my Abba as we were eating, I would get up from the table and because of my instigation, I'm sorry, because of the instigation of the demons, steal a biscuit and eat it secretly, hiding it from the Abba. I kept up this ha bad habit for a long time and was obsessed by it, not having the strength to restrain myself. I was reproached only by my conscience and was ashamed to tell it to the elder. Interesting, I, when I was reading through this and praying about the readings, this line jumped out at me that his conscience was rebuking him. So he could see that what he was doing, his secret eating, uh, that he, he knew that it was outside of the, the role that he had freely chosen to embrace. And so he was sneaking this food and his conscience was rebuking him for him, but his being ashamed preventing him, prevented him from being, bringing it into the light. And so knowing the healing balm of God's grace, that pride was preventing his conscience from leading him to the appropriate end which was to acknowledge it openly and so find healing for himself. So when, you know, people often say, well, my, you know, I acted in accord with my conscience or my conscience is telling me, you know, our conscience has to be not only well-formed, but we have to see also the ways that our conscience can be impeded in, in its action that it won't be allowed to bring us to the appropriate end because our pride, our self-esteem, our feelings of shame prevent it from doing so. And so again, I think this brings us back to the importance of humbly saying them. And you know, the church understands this and understands it well within confession. You know, you often... Uh, you know, priests could be tempted to say things for people or to tell it, or, you know, people want to have a phone conversation or email it in or whatever it might be. And there's something about audibly being able to acknowledge it and say it that is liberating, that opens us up to the action of God's grace. 
And so far this monk wasn't able to do it. It so happened by the providence of God who loves mankind that certain brothers came to visit the elder in order to receive spiritual benefit. These men asked the elder about their thoughts in response, the elder said to them that nothing so harms monks or so gives pleasure to the demons as for them to hide their thoughts from their spiritual fathers. Continuing, my elder spoke to the visitors about abstinence as well. As I listened to the things my elder was saying, I began to come to my senses and suspect that God had disclosed my transgressions to the elder. I was deeply moved by this and began to weep. So after removing from my breast pocket the biscuit, which I had stolen, on account of my bad habit, I fell to the ground and asked for forgiveness for the faults I had committed and for the elder's blessing that God might keep me safe in the future. The elder said to me, ah, my child, yet without my saying anything to you, your confession has set you free. Inasmuch as you have confessed with sincerity your faults and have slain the demon, which until now had wounded you with silence. From this time forth, then, he will not have a place in your soul, since he's come out of your heart and has been revealed. The elder had not yet quite finished what he was saying when, behold, the power of the demon appeared to be coming out of the breast like a flame of fire filling the whole place with a stench so foul that those present thought that sulfur was burning somewhere. Then the elder said, behold, proof of my words and of your freedom. God has clearly shown us the truth with the sign which just occurred. From that time forth, the passion of gluttony left me, as well as that devilish desire to steal food. After that, I never even thought about it. It's, this is, again, one of those beautiful, we've come across so many beautiful stories, certainly in all of our readings, and the Evergatinos uh, in particular in the last couple of weeks. But this is one that uh, I think is special because it shows us also the tenderness of a spiritual father, <clears throat> that his desire is not to shame the one who comes to him. Uh, and this is talked a lot about in the next hypothesis, uh, that the spiritual father is to be ever so gentle. And we see that in this spiritual father, that even as uh, he acknowledges what he had done and breaks into tears and, and admits it, he does not rebuke him. He does not shame him, but rather seeks to lift him up. Look. You know, your, your willingness to confess it, your willingness to acknowledge, acknowledge it has already set you free. The moment that you did that, there was this profound outpouring of grace, so much so that the demon that has afflicted you will no, no longer afflict you again. And then the truth of what he said is revealed through their experience of the, the smell of, of, of the sulfur, of the demon being ousted from his heart. And, you know, this should be, I think, our experience, especially the confessional, you know, that, uh, you know, the, and we'll get into this in the next hypothesis as well, you know, what is to be going on in our hearts too, when we acknowledge these things, then this monk is an example of that, that, you know, his, the words of the elder broke through his heart, 
and he, he weeps over them. He knows true contrition and sorrow, and he's able to acknowledge it. Uh, but the spiritual father is to be an aid in, in that, that process. And eventually the sorrow, you know, the mourning that goes along with the poverty of our sin gives way to joy. And we are liberated from, from the affliction. And I think, that, again, this is what Cassian has been getting at that when there is this willingness to expose to the light, to expose to God what the demon is doing, uh, that this brings a flood of God's grace. And so I don't think we want to overemphasize so much the counsel of the elders, rather than the role of the elders to receive what is given to them and entrusted to them uh, by the one who's acknowledging the sin. And, you know, in that they are to be this healing presence and to help that outpouring of grace bear as much fruit in the person's life as possible. And we'll see this, you know, as we move forward in the coming weeks, play, you know, describe for us beautifully, you know, first in this hypothesis and, you know, what our actions should be, but then what a spiritual father is to look like in the next. can't see the forest for the trees. That's it. Thank you, Joanne. <laughs> that was going to drive me nuts. Okay. Any other final thoughts before we close for the night? Okay, very good. Just a few before we have our final prayer, just a few comments. Uh, as many of you know, and probably all of you know at this point, I'm in a uh, place of transition, um, moving to the Archeparchy here in Pittsburgh and have started my training in the Divine Liturgy uh, with the help of Father Miron, who's here this evening. And, uh, but I will be continuing uh, the groups on Monday and Wednesday evening, as well as the podcast. Uh, but we're working to get some things set up. The short links that Ren gave earlier here in the uh, chat, uh, as well as a, a website uh, for, that will gather all the material for Philokalia Ministries. And for all those who have supported so generously in the past, also a, a way to donate too. That might take us a week or so to get that arranged. So if you are giving uh, and want to continue with Phil uh, supporting Philokalia Ministries, <coughs> we do have some startup costs, but you might wanna hold off or pause the donations until we get that set up. Should only be a week or so, and we'll have it up and running. Okay, if you've already signed up, to get the emails, you'll continue to get the email of the link every week. You don't have to re-sign sign up, okay? Very good. So while we close there, as always, the prayer in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God.